Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joha Show podcast. Today on the pod, long overdue relief will soon arrive for Vancouver Motorists as gas prices are expected to drop by 35 cents per liter on Thursday. How long can BC Motors deal with the constant volatile pricing? Plus, she said what? Alberta's new premier says the unvaccinated are the most discriminated against group she's seen in her lifetime. Calgary political consultant Stephen Carter tells us why BC needs to be concerned about our political neighbor next door. And later, Rick Forchek joins us to look at the future of late night TV talk shows as the genre struggles to make a leap into the streaming world. That's all next on the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Some long overdue relief is coming for Metro Vancouver drivers as gas prices are expected to fall dramatically in the next 24 hours. Analysts are forecasting a drop of 35 cents per litre by Thursday. Reports suggest this could be one of the biggest single day drops in Canadian history, bringing local prices to $1.92.9 per litre. Joining me now to talk about uh, gas prices tomorrow and into the um, fall, of course, is Dan McTagg, President of Canadians for Affordable Energy. Hello, Dan. Uh, hello, Jess. So walk me through, uh, first of all, uh, is this going to be a, a drop that'll stick around for a while, or is this going to be temporary? Oh, no, it's going to stick around a while, and you're probably going to, you're going to get another three-cent decrease. So before we say analysts with an S at the end, that's not what you did, but <laughs> this, sort of, uh, this analyst who actually gets it right every single time, <laughs> sorry, a bit of a PSA there for myself. Mm-hmm. No, it's going to drop from 227.9 at most stations today, that you saw earlier this morning, to 192.9. So that's a fall of 35 cents a litre. That is historical. There's no city that's ever recorded anything like that in Canada in one fell swoop in one day. As we know, of course, it dropped uh, 13 cents on the weekend, uh, just in time for Thanksgiving Sunday. And, of course, uh, tomorrow, uh, rather this Friday, Jazz, that will fall from 192.9 to 189.9. I normally share this with my good friend, uh, Jen Brown, not a stranger to the station here, mm-hmm. uh, but I thought I'd give that here first because it's uh, it's been one of those days. So, sorry, so a buck 92 tomorrow, and then when do we expect a buck 89? Just a couple of days after? Yeah, Friday. Friday, so midnight okay. tomorrow night. So tonight, if you hold off tonight, uh, you save 35 cents a litre, and I can imagine a lot of gas stations are bracing for this because they're going to lose money for sure. Uh, but uh, it you know, goes both ways. When they were, prices were going up, they were also making money. Nevertheless, uh, down 35 cents at midnight tonight and down another 3 cents midnight tomorrow night for Friday. Wow, that is, that is amazing. What was causing this uh, in regards to the, the huge increase we saw so quickly? Uh, significant constriction in supply. Uh, I think there were some problems, obviously, with uh, Canadian uh, uh, suppliers, uh, pipeline restrictions, constraints uh, with the T, with the Trans Mountain pipeline. It's always a problem, but it was made worse by uh, three factors that happened almost, uh, you know, at the same time. The Ferndale Phillips 66 refinery sends a lot of its fuel into our region, especially to Vancouver Island. It was down. It was supposed to only be for 10 days to two weeks. It wound up being three weeks, three and a half weeks. Uh, all along the uh, California coast, several refineries went through unplanned maintenance, flaring. They ran into trouble. Mm-hmm. And then to add uh, to all this uh, mayhem, you had the uh, Olympic pipeline, the BP's Olympic pipeline that takes all of the fuel 
from the Pacific Northwest, distributes it around Washington State and all the way down to California. That too went down. So that created a significant supply crunch on a scale we have never seen. Uh, in fact, uh, production was down about 80% of its normal for this time of year, uh, wow. with a lot of refineries, of course, uh, not being able to meet the demand. And uh, it wasn't until a little Italian ship showed up uh, <laughs> ready to dock on the weekend, which it did, that delivered uh, uh, what we desperately needed, about uh, 300,000 barrels of, uh, of of gasoline into the Ferndale uh, docks there. And so that's what saved the day. Now, of course, uh, refiners are back up and running. So the threat, the concern, the uh, uh, the real uh, crimp supply is now apparently coming to an end. So sorry, uh, can I just go back to the vessel coming in? Did you say from Italy? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, amazing. Eh? <laughs> so where was the where was the the fuel coming from then? The, the vessel was from Italy. Where did the fuel come from? Well, they make their own. I mean, any and many, many other refiners. They looked at what's called the crude to rack spread. That's the you know, co- cost of crude and what uh, wholesale prices were in this spot market on the Pacific Northwest, and said, "Oh my goodness, if we can get a ship of gasoline over there, we can make triple what we normally make selling to wherever our customers are." And there would be many. And so they loaded a ship quietly after the second week, uh, first week and a half. And uh, I guess the ship may have been out at sea looking for other markets, changed directions, although I'd have to look at tanker traffic for this kind of stuff because it's pretty, uh, it's, <laughs> it's close, uh, I guess it's uh, you know inside cricket stuff that happens. But my sense is that uh, they came because they realized that uh, the situation in the Pacific Northwest uh, was extraordinarily lucrative and uh, the effect of them dropping such a large amount of fuel in one fell swoop, I think, uh, explains why we started to see prices uh, collapse or at least drop when uh, I think Janet Brown was able to uh, uh, convey this uh, to all motorists here at CKW sometime in the afternoon on, on Friday. It was news of that ship that I think uh, gave us uh, cause for celebration. It, it, I find it amazing that in a developed nation, which is supposed to have secure pipeline systems, uh, one would argue energy security, that it yeah. uh, came down to a ship from Italy. Well, the Saudis were right, aren't they? Uh, when their uh, foreign minister, the minister of energy and climate change, uh, uh, came out and said, you know, you guys haven't built in anywhere in North America and Europe. You haven't built a refinery in 10 years. Um, your population is growing, your demand is increasing, and you, yet you demand that we provide you uh, you know the uh, the additional supplies that you need. So I, I think it's it, it certainly rings true for folks like me who uh, look at this and say, you know, <laughs> BC has seen its population grow, but its uh, ability to meet that is uh, done in a very fragile, very you know just in time way. And if any one of those elements uh, breaks down for a period of time, that uh, sends a cataclysmic uh, chill down the uh, down the proverbial pipeline, and that's why we paid as much as we did. And you know, we weren't alone. Uh, the Pacific Northwest, Washington State refineries, and and consumers also saw very similar increases, although uh, tempered over several days. More importantly, uh, they don't have to pay. I mean, they pay twenty six, twenty seven cents in fuel tax. We pay seventy four, seventy five, and I'm including the. Uh, the, uh, the the BC low carbon fuel tax, which is buried in the cost of uh, wholesale price of gasoline, but there's also, of course, uh, the reality of a weak Canadian dollar it takes 138 pennies now to buy a U.S. dollar. Um, all of these things are signs that uh, 
trouble lies ahead for the purchase power of Canadians and their ability to make ends meet. And, and talking yeah. about that future, just for a second, uh, you still have sure. the, the situation in Ukraine uh, continuing today. Uh, the Royal Bank uh, came out with a study basically saying the recession is going to uh, could lead to a jobless rate in Canada about 7%, up from their initial forecast of 6.6% in unemployment. Uh, they're predicting a recession in 2023, early 2023. When you take all of those things into consideration, Ukraine, um, a recession coming, rising interest rates, you're talking about the dollar a little bit. What do you see for Vancouver and, and just southern BC Coast uh, drivers in regards to gas prices over the next three to six months? Well, I think they're going to be back up in the $2 range. I don't think they're going to go extraordinarily above that unless there are shortages that are unforeseen, unplanned events. Um, but a recession uh, in Canada uh, won't, uh, you know, won't leave Vancouver unscathed like Toronto, like Montreal, uh, Edmonton, Calgary, uh, Winnipeg. You're all going, we're all going to feel this, uh, you know, uh, in, a, in a way that I think will surprise a generation that has never known what a recession is, but it's coming. And it will uh, feature not only uh, the inability for uh, for central banks and policymakers to get a, <clears throat> a hold on inflation. It uh, it is, I think, going to perhaps wake a lot of uh, policymakers up to the reality that uh, maybe we need to slow down on the so-called energy transition because what we're doing is starving the world of the thing it, it needs. We're eroding the purchasing power of Canadians and. Uh, we're not giving what the world desperately needs right now, a lot of natural gas and oil. And like it or not, um, you know, uh, what we do get uh, is still made with oil and gas at the end of the day, whether it's your EV or your, uh, your uh, any form of renewable. At the ultimate time, I think, for all of us here in the recession, that is going to hit us. Uh, I think it may be harder for Canadians, if only because we're just not accustomed to 7% unemployment, and that'll be the declared amount. It'll probably be a little higher than that, as well as, the Bank of Canada will continue to fight uh, and wrestle this inflationary spiral, much of it created by a shortage in energy. And so I don't know if it's the right prescription. I believe that uh, the Bank of Canada, uh, also responsible for saying we have to uh, put stress tests on you know, lending to companies that uh, have a big, large carbon footprint, mm-hmm. I think maybe we want to slow down on this and start to realize that uh, we're going to do a lot more damage than good and the cost-benefit at the end of the day, it's not worth it. Yeah. Dan, uh, thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. Thanks for having me again, Jess. All right. That's Dan McTigg, president of Canadians for Affordable Energy. And as he mentioned, uh, he called it uh, just the other day that, that we should have a 35 cent per liter drop uh, by tomorrow and a further drop uh, on Friday as well. Well, a jury in Connecticut decided today the conspiracy theorist Alex Jones should pay $965 million to pay to people who suffered from his false claim that the Sandy Hook Elementary School shooting uh, was a hoax. The verdict is the second uh, big judgment against the InfoWars host over his relentless promotion of the lie that the 2012 massacre never happened and that the grieving families seen in news coverage were actors hired as part of a plot to take away people's guns. It came in a lawsuit filed by the relatives of five children uh, and three educators killed in the mass shooting, plus an FBI agent who was among the first responders to the scene. A Texas jury in August awarded nearly $50 million to the parents of another slain child. So what is the impact uh, of today's re- verdict? Well, joining me now is Jesse Miller, social media expert and founder of Mediated Reality. Jesse, thank you for joining us today. Happy to be here. Uh, what's your main takeaway with this uh, jury verdict of $965 million on top of the 
previous uh, Texas jury ver- verdict of $50 million. What's your takeaway in regards to free speech and Mr. Jones? Well, a, cu- a couple of notes. The United States has obviously produced a number of media personalities who never really had any substance of media training. They were able to capitalize on cable markets and uh, broadcast mediums that are always kind of changing where you get to choose how you absorb somebody's content. And Alex Jones is a high school graduate, community college uh, participant, uh, was very successful in that space and used aspects of conspiracy theory to engage an audience who wanted to pay attention to him. So we know that he used things like the Oklahoma City bombing or uh, the Waco siege to really polarize an audience. And so he's consistently done that by then taking over aspects of terrestrial radio and, um, you know, getting people to pay attention to him. And so in our social media world, we always say, look at these influencers, look at these kids. But you have grown adults who subscribe to InfoWars who actually believe the rhetoric and conspiracy theory that comes out of this guy on a daily basis. And it's like subscribing to Maury Povich. It's like subscribing to Jerry Springer. Just because somebody's saying something does not mean at the end of the day that they're, they're legitimate. And this process here of this jury saying, you said something absolutely atrocious about individuals who were victimized, who had their children st- stolen from them due to gun violence. And here's now where you have to pay. And this is an astronomical amount. Uh, he obviously doesn't have the money, but I hope that at some point this makes it so he's not able to utter another word into a microphone. Hmm. Uh, do you think, I mean, in regards to defamation laws, I can only say so much uh, based on fact and the broadcast medium that is overseen by the CRTC. There are defamation laws as well. Do you think this will change uh, the discourse in a social media world today? No, because what we learned when, when Alex Jones was deplatformed from social media, he actually became richer. He found a way to get his audience to not have to subscribe to him on Instagram or Twitter. They chose to pay money to get direct access to him, which, again, if that's somebody's choice, like that's where we would pay for HBO back in the day because we wanted to hear the swear words in our cable package. I think the individuals that we're kind of talking about here with defamation become the polarizing topics that make people believe something. So, again, you have to remember here what he said about Sandy Hook as as an event. You had individuals who went and threatened to dig up these children's graves to prove that there were no bodies in the caskets. Like he really dialed into individuals who would go to the farthest extreme of belief to prove something. And that, and that right there kind of looks at what his audience is. And so I understand that you as a broadcaster in Canada who's regulated by CRTC, you have a bit of space to cast your own opinion or to talk about a, an issue based on the known facts. But hyperbole doesn't play a lot of space in there because you can only speak to what you know. Now, within that, Alex Jones didn't have to subscribe to that case. He's not limited by the CRTC. And Canadians who absorb him are choosing to access something that isn't regulated by our, what we would consider our best practices. Mm. So in that, when we look at the way that defamation plays a role, yes, on social media, we can still say things about people. It doesn't mean at the end of the day that it meets the threshold. And in Canada, actually, even yesterday, we had a big Supreme Court uh, hearing involving a uh, former uh, uh, BC Federation of Teachers representative and a BC school trustee. That, uh, in the sense of Canada, should be more focused on than Alex Jones and his garbage. Can... Is it possible to create a Canadian Alex Jones with our culture, our political environment, our media uh, uh, ecosystem? Can an Alex Jones um, be born here in this country? We, we already have our, our pseudo-individuals in that space. If we look at aspects of Rebel News and where uh, Rebel News uses the term news, but very much kind of drums up 
content that fits into a narrative. Um, I don't consider Rebel News to be a reputable uh, form of, of journalism, and the majority of journalists in Canada would, would agree with that. That said, we have people in Canada who subscribe to Rebel News and believe it to be truth. We have the same thing with aspects of our door-to-door newspapers, the Druthers coming to our door. Uh, that does not mean that it is the same editorial content as, let's say, the Vancouver Sun or Vancouver Province, Global, uh, Global Mail, whatever it be. But when it comes down to the idea of personality, yes, we have a number of Canadian personalities who sit on YouTube, who sit on Facebook Live, who say things. And those people in Canada currently are being held to account. We've seen individuals like Tamara Leach or we've seen Pat King, who were the individuals involved in the Freedom Convoy. They have been held to not only criminal, but potentially civil uh, uh, approaches to what their responsibilities are in that space where they get people to participate, which is what we're seeing uh, tomorrow uh, with these, uh, these investigations into whether or not the emergency uh, powers used by the current government during that setting was appropriate. And so we will hear from ministers of transportation, we'll hear from chiefs of police, but we'll also hear from individuals who sit on the internet talking about things to see whether or not their roles made us more vulnerable in the way that individuals chose to protest. Well, I mean, this is a hard question to answer. Do you think this is the last of Alex Jones, is the last we'll hear of him? No, it's the same way when we, we saw the departure of Donald Trump in the presidency, right? What is the last of a person? Uh, Alex Jones is an irrelevant individual. I'm not going to take that away from his media uh, personality. The same way that Kardashians are relevant in their business space. I don't have to agree with what the Kardashians do to acknowledge that they have a business acumen that works in their favor. Alex Jones, the same way. He is able to take what's happening to him and saying, hey, I, they want a billion dollars out of me. And what does he do right after? He puts in a website and says, go buy some vitamins, go buy some things for me, help me take on these individuals. His conspiracy, the way he approaches it, thinks of this globalization idea. And he's very, he always runs this kind of very slippery slope of it's almost borderline racist. It's almost borderline offensive. And he is able to make it work because he has individuals who choose to subscribe to his rhetoric. Those people, the way that they choose to spend their money is part of our capitalist structure. So Alex Jones may or may not be relevant five years from now. But in that, do I really care to see him say anything about any major events? Myself as a subscriber, not at all. But somebody out there may be very upset today that Alex Jones won't be on a microphone in two years. Jesse, thank you. Thank you, Jazz. As always, great to hear from you. It's that time of the week when we discuss all things political and local. It's time for the CKNW Global BC Civic Election Panel. The panel joins me every Wednesday at 4 p.m. during the course of this election campaign. As well, they'll join me on election night on Global BC this Saturday. Andrea Reimer started her public uh, work as a community organizer on issues of social, economic, and environmental justice. In 2002, she ran and won a seat on Vancouver School Board, uh, forced, uh, first for the Green Party of Canada, and went on to be elected to Vancouver City Council from 2008 to 2018 with Vision Vancouver. Welcome, Andrea. Hi, Jazz. Nice to see you. Yeah, good to see you as well. Hal Salem is an elected Indigenous leader as chair of the Squamish Nation Council. His nation is known for its work on the large-scale development in the city of Vancouver, including the Sinoc lands in Kitsilano, as well as the Jericho and Heather Streets land. Uh, he serves on several intergovernmental committees with First Nations and municipal governments in his elected role. His work over the past five years since he was first elected has focused on market and non-market housing development, urban planning, transportation issues, and government-to-government relations. He is a frequent commentator on many local political issues. Hal Salem, welcome. 
Thank you. Good to be here. And Mary Polak is a strategic advisor at Maple Leaf Strategies and served 15 years as an MLA and holding several portfolios, including Minister of Environment, Minister of Transportation and Infrastructure, Minister of Aboriginal Relations, Relations and Reconciliation, and Minister of Health. Mary, good to see you. Good to see you too, Jess. All right, let's talk about issue number one. Do political endorsements matter? In the past couple of weeks, we've seen many endorsements from the Vancouver Police Union, from firefighters, NDP leadership uh, hopeful David Eby uh, endorsed uh, the Vancouver mayor. Ex-politicians have jumped in and and endorsed their respective uh, uh, parties, and many trade unions have all endorsed candidates as well. But do they work? Some have said they can be quite persuasive. Others say, look, uninformed citizens uh, can follow recommendations without having to invest their time to learning about the issues and how they impact them and their community. Halsey, let me start with you. Do endorsements actually matter? Uh, I think endorsements matter a little bit, but they're not the biggest motivator that I think drives people to convince them on which way to vote. And We're seeing in some of the polls that are coming out now that there's more happening, say, for example, in the Vancouver race, where there's still a sizable population that's reporting as undecided. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think in those contexts, uh, there's a number of things that factor into people's decision making. I know in past elections, both provincially and federally, polls would show that uh, a party's platform would actually influence uh, people's voting intentions uh, pretty significantly versus, I think, just endorsements from well-known individuals. I think the endorsements that actually really matter is the ones that come from uh, friends and family who are reaching out to their own friends and family, that it's more of the personal endorsement, not sort of public high-profile endorsements that really drive the the needle on one way or the other. Mm-hmm. Now, Andrea, uh, when I was reading your bio there, you've, you've uh, been part of Vancouver School Board, uh, 10 years on Vancouver City Council. Uh, when you ran, did you find them important, being endorsed by a particular union or a group of people? Did they help? Yeah, well, I mean, I was the first uh, person elected to a school board with the Green Party in Canada, and I was also the first to receive the District Labour Council endorsement in Canada. And I, I don't think those are unrelated things. I think it definitely helped me cross the line. Although that was 20 years ago, so I, I think times have changed somewhat on that front. Um, I would largely agree with Phil Salem. Like it really, a, a lot of answers in politics are, it depends. Mm-hmm. And, and in this case, in this election, <laughs> Um, I would say this is huge ballot, and I would argue the problem with the ballot isn't really that there's too many candidates, it's that there's too many parties. And so if you're not taking your case to your family of voters through a nomination process, um, really the only way to help your voters navigate 10 parties in Vancouver, eight mayoral candidates in Surrey, and five parties um, is those endorsements, but they're really not all created equally. As Kel Salem's pointed out, someone you know and love is probably going to have a bit of more influence on you. Mm-hmm. Um, I think at the, the big endorsements we've seen, um, ones that I see would probably help, um, Kennedy Stewart endorsing Vision Vancouver School and Park Board slates helps people see alignments and agreements mm-hmm. in a way that works for them when they go to the polls. Not quite as helpful. Um, Ken Sim accepting the police endorsement. Um, it may or may not help him in the election, but it severely tarnishes his hands if he wins. So I mean, you have to think about in what way, Andrea, kicking the ball. But I don't mean to jump in. In what way does it tarnish uh, him if he gets elected? Well, in the case of the police, and this is, as I understand it, unprecedented. It certainly hasn't happened in my lifetime. I'm not mm-hmm. sure if it's happened before that. We give police a tremendous amount of power. 
um, they, they carry guns, they can use coercive force. And the way we balance that power is by having civilian oversight of the police board, or sorry, of the police themselves through the police board. The mayor of Vancouver is legally required to chair that board. He's the head of civilian oversight. So if he's crossed that line from civilian into friend of police mm-hmm. um, to the point where they are taking this unprecedented step of endorsing him, how much do civilian citizens trust him when, you know, when a moment comes that you need that civilian oversight, and we've had a number of police-involved shootings over this last term, mm-hmm. um, you kind of want to know that the guy who's there to look after your interest as a, a citizen um, is on your side of the line. And I've certainly seen on the ground, um, it's it's mobilized a lot of votes, but not the way Sim might have intended. Um, there's a lot of people who've been motivated in the last week to go out and vote against that endorsement, even though they might have been leading Sim before. So it'll be interesting to see how it plays out on Saturday night. Uh, Mary, your thoughts on this particular endorsement from the Vancouver Police Union? Some would say, look, uh, that sounds wonderful on the surface, but a lot of their members probably live in the suburbs in communities like yours, so they can't vote anyway, number one. Others have said when a police union does endorse someone, like in the United States, you had police unions endorsing Donald Trump. Well, there are a lot of African-American police officers, many minority officers, that had no time or patience for these police unions for doing what they did. And it's kind of like, you know, the BCTF telling its members to vote one way, uh, let's say NDP, but for sure there are members within the BCTF that are going to vote BC Liberal. And I use that as as a provincial example. But what do you think of the idea of a police union endorsing officials? I, it really, I find it fascinating. The number of people who are uh, getting very, very upset about the police union endorsing a mayoralty candidate, and I haven't heard those kinds of uh, wails of terror every single year when teachers unions, local and provincial, endorse school board candidates across the piece, and they are the direct employer of those teachers. So, I mean, I I think um, fair ball for any organization that has members whose issues it feels it's advancing, they're going to make an endorsement, that's fine. But let's not clutch our pearls about the police union um, when union endorsements in particular in school board elections are as common as anything else. We're talking about uh, themes from the last six weeks of campaigning. Candidates have been attending debates, knocking on doors running ads. In fact, I heard three of them in the last commercial break. I was counting as all of these candidates present their vision for their respective uh, communities. What themes, policy, or moments have captured their attention? That's what I want to ask them. Let me start with uh, you first, Mary. A lot going on. In fact, one would argue that, uh, you know, the races out in Surrey, even Langley Township is another one that's quite interesting. Uh, Lots of talk about mental health and addiction, housing issues. Is there any particular theme or particular uh, campaign you're keeping an eye on that sort of caught your attention? Well, I think what'll be quite interesting is the approach that is taken in Surrey. I mean, Surrey's going to have, Surrey does have huge influence across um, the region. And so depending on which mayoralty candidate gets in, you could see that have an influence on what happens at Metro and therefore uh, what happens across our region. In terms of Langley, um, you know, housing is another one that stays hot button and safety too. It's it's really close on the minds of people. Um, the gun violence that we've experienced in our area recently, uh, that's something new for us. You know, we see it in Abbotsford and Surrey, but not in Langley. So public safety, but housing also, again, uh, that's going to be a dividing line, I, I think, between um, Rich Coleman and Eric Woodward 
certainly housing um, forms a great part of both of their platforms. Mm-hmm. Uh, Andrea, I'm very interested in your thoughts. Uh, what sort of captured your attention, number one, regards to a topic or a race? But secondly, um, do you think we've coalesced around any sort of real solution around housing and then mental health and addiction because they're so interconnected? Yeah, well, I think, I mean, I was reflecting that, I mean, it's sort of been, I'm going to give you the good, the bad, and the ugly. Sure. So the good, <laughs> um, in Vancouver, um, I've, I've very much been impressed to see, despite all these parties, um, they have very fully fleshed out platforms, really well thought out, clearly talking to people in the community who are on top of these issues, um, significant promises on housing, on climate, on reconciliation, on childcare from every party. When I first ran in 2008, like people made fun of us for having platforms on those things. And now it's just the price of admission. Um, the, the bad, um, there was a recent debate in Vancouver. So we got the platforms, but then it's the can they deliver. Hensim was not only not able to name either the federal or the provincial mm-hmm. housing minister, mm-hmm. he said it didn't matter. So saying you want to do something, but clearly showing that you don't understand what it's going to take to get that done is not as great as those platforms. And then the ugly. I mean, we have so many parties in BC right now in in the metro area and Victoria. um, And the real ballot question is always leadership. And if you can't lead well enough to get your own political family together, I don't I don't see where the leadership skills are to be able to govern a large Canadian cities with the kind of challenges that we have in 2022. So I feel I'm a little worried about Saturday night because it's one night in the next four years. um, And really, who's going to emerge as a leader in that is still a question mark in my mind. Mm -hmm. Uh, Salem, how about you? Do you think this is a change election? Uh, Some have said it is. uh, And what I mean by that is Vancouver and Surrey could potentially have new mayors. Perhaps not. Perhaps they will. I don't know. Are there any themes that have sort of of, uh, caught your attention? The themes that I... I had assumed would become a big topic in the election throughout the region and actually did, which I thought was a, a good outcome for, I think, the electorate was that housing and land use, mm-hmm. you know, various competing visions around that were actually put forward. And it's, it is a, it is the topic because it's, it's such a painful point for people. And I know I think the housing market is going through a bit of a shift right now because of interest rates. But at the end of the day, um, you know, when people can't struggle, when they struggle to pay to find a reasonable rent or a reasonable price for a home. Um, I think as interest rates are not climbing and people are going to have to renegotiate their mortgages and look at selling in order to be able to now afford something and probably move into a rental, there's still going to be a lot of pain for people on trying to just have shelter over their head for their families. So I think there's been a really big policy debate around land use and housing in the municipal election, which is one of the biggest responsibilities of municipalities. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I, I'm curious to see what the outcome of that is, because if you have a vision that is moving the needle in terms of increased density, uh, more dense communities across the board and moving away from the sort of Burnaby Vancouver model, which is we're going to build large towers on greenfield sites but largely protect single detached neighborhoods, which has been the policy for decades, are we going to see a shift away from that? And I think the biggest surprise for me was that on that topic, we had a leadership candidate in one of the governing parties of the province actually release a housing platform that actually moves into some of the municipal issues for the first time. 
And I think that that's a really different sort of take on what's happening right now. Um, but in terms of whether it's going to change or not, I think the fact that we're now doing four year terms for municipal elections is going to see if that actually leads to a bigger shift election election. Whereas before, you know, a few years ago, we used to have municipal elections every three years. Mm -hmm. So does the extra year give people a little bit of a taste of I'm ready for change? I want somebody else in charge. We'll, we'll have to wait and see. Uh, Andrea, I'm very interested in your opinion on this. Yours as well, Mary. Let me start with you first, though, Andrea. This, the, the announcement that David Eby made as an NDP leadership uh, uh, candidate that Hal Salem brought up, the significant policy changes in and around housing that will be specific to Vancouver in some cases, and then the entire province as well, three units on, on a lot, uh, secondary suites being allowed, uh, lots of uh, talk in and around affordable housing as well. Andrea, do you think uh, if uh, Mr. Eby does win and he does implement this stuff, what kind of reaction do you think we will see from city councils around uh, British Columbia? Yeah, well, I'll say um, we were talking about endorsements and I mean, David Eby's endorsement of Kennedy Stewart really stood out for me. I can't remember a time. I'm sure it's happened. I don't I don't think it was unprecedented, but certainly unusual to see someone who, regardless of whether he wins or not um, for premier, has been a very high profile uh, minister and I think is in a good position to win as premier. Um, it's an odd it was an interesting choice, um, but I think it speaks um, the opposite of Ken Sim not being able to name the housing minister um, to the relationship that Stewart built with David Eby when he was in charge of housing. And I think that's quite significant. I, I do see um, it, it does appear like a lot of changes in the air around the province, um, and that may bode very difficultly for whoever is the next housing minister and Eby as a potential premier. Um, because that that change tends to be um, swinging right now in the direction of people who want to stop new housing in their neighborhoods, right? So this has been a, a big challenge across the province for BC Housing um, to get housing sites landed. And I, I think that might get harder after Saturday night. But I mean, re-election is determined by turnout. So a lot of that's going to depend on how many people show up to vote on yeah, Saturday. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Mary, we're going to have to hold uh, for your opinion on for Saturday night because we run out of time and look forward to, to speaking to you, Hell Salem and Andrea Reimer. Uh, it's going to be a lot of fun. We'll be on BC1 covering the results uh, with Chris Kalis and Sophie Louis, Keith Baldry, uh, Richard Zussman will, will be joining us as well. It's going to be an interesting night. Thank you so much today. Well, Alberta's premier during her first media conference on the job said the, the way that unvaccinated residents have been treated is unacceptable and she is looking to defend their rights while she is in office. Danielle Smith made the comments in Edmonton yesterday after she was officially sworn in. During the media availability afterwards, she was asked about why she felt vaccine choice needed to be protected. Uh, she says unvaccinated Canadians have been the most discriminated group that she's witnessed in her lifetime. Take a listen. The community that faced the most restrictions on their freedoms in the last year were those who made a choice not to be vaccinated. I don't think I've ever experienced a situation in my lifetime where a person was fired from their job or not allowed to watch their kids play hockey or not allowed to go visit a loved one in long-term care or hospital or not allowed to go get on a plane to either go across the country to see family or even travel across the border. So they have been the most discriminated against group that I've ever witnessed in my lifetime. That's a pretty extreme level.
That was uh, Alberta Premier Daniel Smith. Now, joining us now is Stephen Carter. Mr. Carter is an Alberta-based campaign strategist who most recently worked on Calgary Mayor Jody Gondak's campaign. He also has worked on former Calgary Mayor Nahid Nenshi's campaign, as well as former Alberta Premier Allison Redford's campaign. Stephen, thank you for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me, Jess. This is very exciting. <laughs> well, it's an interesting conversation. Uh, you've worked extensively in Alberta politics. Uh, you know Daniel Smith. Uh, can you explain what transpired with that comment yesterday from her? I mean, essentially, Danielle stood up at her very first pre- press conference after being sworn in as, pri- as premier in Alberta and declared that there was no group that in her lifetime had ever been more discriminated against than those who were the anti. I, I find that rather, I, as you mentioned in the opening there, I, I've known Danielle for years. Uh, we grew up in at the same time in Calgary when the Vreen decision was uh, the big talk in, in Alberta where they were trying to use the notwithstanding clause uh, to allow religious institutions and organizations to fire employees who were gay. We saw Danielle and I when we were growing up, and uh, and yet here she is forgetting that there are uh, women in hijabs and, and uh, people of color who are across the province of Alberta who experience real discrimination every day. It was Absolute lunacy in my mind. Do you think that was a calculated comment or just in a case of um, stepping in it and, and not speaking properly at the end of the day? Do you think it was calculated on her part? I think it was actually, calculated is a really interesting word, Jazz, because it, it has this connotation of planned. And I don't think it was planned. I think it was honest. And that's the thing that really scares me to death is that Danielle Smith has not seen or experienced racism in any farce or any form of discrimination in her lifetime, and she actually thinks that the uh, choices that the anti-vax movement have made that resulted in consequences are the same as actual discrimination. But it's it's really confusing to me. Um, you know, here in British Columbia, we're interconnected with Alberta when it comes to our economy. Um, you have many British Columbians who travel to Alberta for work. Um, in, in one time, at one time, there would be fly-out services from. Kelowna or Nanaimo to the oil sands. Uh, our companies uh, bid for many projects in Alberta, including the oil sands, but many other places as well. We are interconnected. What should British Columbians make of uh, Smith's ascension to, uh, to, to, pre- to Premier? I think that they should be nervous about it. Uh, number one, I think that politics like this spread. Uh, I think that, uh, you know, Kevin Falcon deciding to move towards the Unity Party as opposed to uh, the BC Liberals is a, is a tone shift that that things in British Columbia could also shift to the right. That type of shift is, is quite scary, especially when it's used uh, to really pr- you know, push forward the values of the 20%. I think they also need to be worried about the Sovereignty Act. Uh, the Sovereignty Act that Alberta pr- proposes to bring in would essentially allow Alberta to ignore certain Supreme Court decisions. Well, if that was the case and Alberta started to you know, drop off the requirements for environmentalism that are coming from the federal government, there would be direct negative impact on the people of British Columbia that we are already seeing British Columbians face more natural disasters than ever before. And, uh, you know, Albertans really need to get their act together if, uh, if Canada is going to meet their their environmental targets in the future. Now, in this province of ours, we have, uh, at times, a rural-urban divide. Uh, the city is growing a lot faster than the interior and, and many other smaller communities. I grew up in the interior, so I understand the nervousness that some communities and leaders have that live in the interior in the north of British Columbia. How, um, 
uh, how how much of a challenge is that in Alberta in regards to that rural urban divide? It is everything. So there's three regions in Alberta that we speak of, and there's uh, it's Edmonton, Calgary, and then the rural. And rural Alberta has moved further to the right, uh, southern Alberta specifically, um, than any other region in Canada. I mean, I know that British Columbia, we, there's lots of little right-wing enclaves, but in, in southern Alberta, it is uh, a little bit of Trump land. And it's very difficult to imagine what our province looks like if that divide continues to, to happen. In the past, it was mitigated by parties like the Progressive Conservative Party, which were you know, more big tent parties. But when uh, Jason Kenney destroyed the Progressive Conservative Party of Alberta, he in turn took away the ability to uh, you know, have a center party or centrist party. Um, and I think that that's a real lesson for politicians around Canada. You do want to govern from the center. The center is the place where the where the people stand. And I know that that's you know, Jazz, as your political history and your history, you know, always being pragmatic. That type of decision making that puts pragmatism, smart, and intelligent decision making first is always the best type of government. Are you concerned for your province's future with the rhetoric that we do hear that we've just heard, obviously, and we continue to hear? I mean, I, I think of uh, the Peter Lougheeds and, and many other leaders that that sort of represented what you've just said. That pragmatism. Uh, can Alberta get back to that place anytime soon? I, I'm not. I'm not sure that they can. I think we're we're going to be ping-ponging back and forth between um, different types of government that, that, that bring more ideological solutions than pragmatic solutions. That scares me to death. I think that we need a good pragmatic government in Alberta, in the same way that pragmatic government in British Columbia makes the most sense. Um, that type of government is what attracts me to this business uh, versus this ideologically based one. I do worry about Alberta. And quite frankly, Jazz, a couple more sunny days, I'll be right out here in the lower mainland forever. <laughs> well, my friend, this is not a normal year. And we were just talking about that at the office. And when, when the, the wet, wet weather arrives, my friend, it will not be, uh, it will not be a pretty place. I promise you that. We get quite depressing, a little moody around j- uh, j- January. Trust me on that. <laughs> this has been a great year. I've had the best year out here with you guys. It's been fantastic. Well, well, my friend, I appreciate your time today. Thank you so much. Thanks so much, Jeff. Big changes are coming to the longtime staple of television programming, also known as the late-night TV talk show, as the genre struggles to make the leap to the streaming world. Trevor Noah is leaving The Daily Show next year. James Corden, the host of CBS's The Late Late Show, will depart his show then as well. TBS cancelled Full Frontal with Samantha B this year. And at NBC, executives are mulling giving up the 10 p.m. hour to local stations. If they make the move, The Tonight Show, for the first time in its seven-decade run, could begin as early as 10.30 p.m. All of this has unleashed a big question inside the television industry. What is the future of the late-night talk show? Joining me now is Rick Forchuk, movie blogger at Rick's Picks and regular columnist for TV Week magazine. Rick, thanks for joining us. My pleasure, Jazz. Always glad to talk with you. Well, this is a fascinating topic. Uh, You know, uh, a lot of us uh, at a younger age grew up with a guy like uh, Johnny Carson, and we've had so many different uh, talk show hosts now. What do you make of the genre uh, as Trevor Noah says that uh, he is moving on and, and uh, the, the television industry continues to go through these uh, incredibly disruptive times? Yeah, well, yeah, Trevor Noah is moving on. 
and James Corden is going to be leaving his late-night post, and uh, several late-night shows uh, have been canceled of late, including that of Samantha Bee. Uh, Conan O'Brien no longer is doing late-night. So the handwriting is on the wall, and if you want to see what the handwriting actually says on that wall, we look at the numbers. And the numbers show that quarter after quarter after quarter, revenue from late-night talk show programming is dropping. And that's the bellwether. When that starts happening, that gets everybody's attention at the network level because they're all in this to make a living, all in this to make money. And the days when um, an appearance on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson, whom you mentioned, Jazz, Mm -hmm. uh, could make or break a career are long gone. You know, such people as uh, Jay Leno uh, owe his career to Johnny Carson because uh, any stand-up comic who showed up on The Carson Show and then was asked to come over and sit on the dais with Johnny uh, had it made in the shade. Joan Rivers was another one of those. Um, Stephen Wright was another. Many, many, many people had their careers made because of the tremendous influence by, of Carson. And even though he was on late at night, uh, he still commanded 25 to 35% of the audience. Today, a talk show host late night is lucky if they get 2%. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's just not enough to make a living, Jazz. Yeah, I was looking at the numbers. I guess the four late night shows on network television... Uh, took in about uh, $300 million in advertising for the first six months of 2021. And for the first six months of this year, uh, they've taken in about $253 million. So a drop of about 16%. That is significant. I guess the question is, where are the are the viewers now? Are they, are they just not staying up as late? Or is it just a, a question of, uh, I'll watch it tomorrow on TikTok or YouTube? Well, that's exactly what happens. Uh, where are the viewers Uh, We now have a situation where the baby boomers, who really drove much of uh, television marketing and television viewing, are now uh, heading towards retirement. And millennials are actually a larger cohort than were the baby boomers. And these people, millennials typically, uh, don't watch television in the same fashion. They do exactly as you suggested. Uh, If they hear that something was really worth seeing, they catch that on social media. They'll go to TikTok or they'll go to YouTube and catch the highlights. They don't need to watch the whole show. So as a result, uh, the, um, the television network doesn't get the kind of audience that it used to. Now, also, and the bigger issue, I think, is streaming. Streaming is just taking off so many people in a different direction. It has not been successful by anyone to have a streaming talk show. And largely, I think that's because topicality is the key. Uh, the talk show hosts are uh, in today's news. They're in today's political world. And uh, when you do streaming, it doesn't hold up very well that way. So we have um, the two things that we talked about, uh, and that is a younger audience that watches television differently or doesn't watch television, but rather catches things on their phone or on their computer. We also have a situation, Jazz, uh, where the audience is so fragmented because there are so many of these shows. You know, if we go back a a few decades, uh, there was Late Night with David Letterman. And there was The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson, and there really wasn't a lot else late night. Uh, The networks then began stacking shows on top of them. We got later and later and later programming. And um, when you do that, it tends to water things down because people can only watch so much. And as viewing habits change, coupled with um, fragmentation of the audience, more places to go and not enough time to go to those places, you get declining numbers. And that's what we're seeing now. And I think I'm anticipating one of your questions. I think this is a death knell for late night talk television as we know it. It doesn't mean there won't be anything in those talk show slots, 
but it does mean it's going to take on a very different form as we move forward, Jazz. Well, I find it interesting. Uh, I was reading that the NBC is actually looking at, uh, at uh, apparently uh, just handing the 10 p.m. hour back to the local affiliates, uh, which would mean, you know, usually local affiliates uh, get the news or get uh, are given time at 11 o'clock for the late local news or after uh, the Tonight Show. I mean, uh, what it looks like now is they basically hand over uh, the programming at 10 p.m. They would never have done that. That was considered prime time. Exactly. That was prime time, and that was unthinkable. Um, but this is part of the new reality. And the other thing, for example, uh, and it exists mostly here uh, in our part of Canada, but uh, you or I or anybody else can watch whatever's on at 11.30 on a late-night talk show. We can watch it at 8.30 here because we get the package from our cable or satellite company that allows us to get the time shift from the eastern time zones. Now, that doesn't happen everywhere, but it does happen enough that um, people's habits are so different and the way of tracking what people are watching are so different that the um, the ratings companies, uh, the Nielsen company, which was the stalwart for many, many years, recently been sold, but... Uh, uh, the way of tracking who's watching what is very difficult. We don't know uh, who's watching what. For example, uh, not in Canada, but in the U.S., uh, people who watch things on their PVR, if they do so within a seven-day period, get counted in with the ratings. But if your PVR looks like mine, where a lot of shows have been stacked up week after week and even month after month before I get around to them, those things show up as never having been watched, even though they are. Uh, same is true when people stream different things, and the same is also true when people watch things on their computer. So we don't really know what's going on, other than the fact that uh, the stats that you cited, uh, seeing a 16% drop in revenue uh, over a six-month period, that's serious business, and that's that's the money line, and that's what's going to get everybody's attention at the network level, Jazz. Rick, if, if these talk shows slowly go away, in some cases, you know, a lot of their content is seen the next morning on YouTube or on TikTok, and I guess there's some revenue that can come from that, but could we eventually maybe see some of these talk shows just being made available just on YouTube and produced just for YouTube for streaming rather than doing what they're doing presently is every night uh, spending a lot of money to produce a, produce a show. Well, I think that could happen, uh, but it wouldn't be with any involvement by networks. It would be uh, individual entrepreneurs coming up with new ways of presenting what they have to present uh, in order for people to watch it. Uh, but the challenge, again, uh, is that um, we lose the common experience. Mm -hmm. It's sort of like the parallel you and I have talked about before. The difference between watching something streaming on Netflix and watching that same thing in a movie theater with a bunch of people with a common interest at a common place and time, uh, the impact in the theater with all of those people is phenomenal, whereas the impact watching streaming on your own is just another few hours spent watching TV. Well, the same is true with talk shows. Uh, it was for generations a situation where around the figurative water cooler, uh, if you hadn't watched Carson the night before, you just couldn't contribute to the conversation because that's what everybody was talking about. And a little bit later, same thing with Letterman. Uh, when Letterman began dropping uh, pumpkins and watermelon off of high buildings, <laughs> that was a topic of conversation for everybody for, for a long time. Today, that commonality is gone because of the fragmentation as to when we watch this stuff and how we watch it. So it's no longer a communal experience. And when you lose that, you also lose the associated revenue that goes with it. So uh, could there be 
uh, programming that's just made for streaming or just made for YouTube. I think that is possible. Uh, how it makes money will be the acid test. And if it doesn't make money, it'll go away quickly, Jazz. Yeah, I mean, I, I see some of it with comedians having their own podcast and then re-editing it for, or filming it at the same time, um, and, and then putting that up on YouTube. So you see some of them do that, and they'll pull in half a million streams over the course of four or five days, and perhaps that may be the model. But your your core argument, uh, core comment in regards to that commonality. Um, what taps into the cultural zeitgeist now? How do we do that if we are losing that core experience of a Johnny Carson or a David Letterman? Um, or if we're losing that co- that common experience of the day the show Friends went off the air or MASH from 30 or 40 years ago, if we lose that commonality, I mean, how do you define a cultural zeitgeist? How do you define even community when it comes to having a common experience? Well, that's a very good question, Jazz, and uh, I think it falls on the shoulders of social media uh, because we have a, a group of people, I won't say a generation because it's probably more than a generation of people who actually believe that they have a thousand friends or two thousand friends or this great huge social circle. Mm-hmm. But it's, it's made up of people they've never seen before. They've never talked with. They've never experienced. In fact, with some people that aren't even real. So we have Twitter. Uh, we have uh, TikTok. We have other social media some of which is legitimate and some of which is just made up. And we have a lot of people who feel that that is their collective family. That's their collective experience. Uh, But it, too, is very fragmented. And as long as you can make money with it uh, at the Elon Musk level, should he go ahead with his purchase of uh, Twitter, for example, as long as it remains a moneymaker, there'll be ways to do this. But it's just not the same. And just like it's not the same to be living in, a, in an agrarian society, you know, uh, four or five generations ago, half of all of the people in Canada lived on farms. Today, it's just a fraction of that. So things change. Uh, the people that were in the buggy whip business uh, 100 years ago aren't in that business anymore. They've had to either uh, shuffle off or they've had to find another way to make a living. And so it shall be with the talk show format, Jess. Yeah, well, it's going to be fascinating to watch... Uh this entire disruptive period and what it does to an old television format like that. Rick, thank you so much for your time, my friend. Always a pleasure, sir. This might be the best time of year for sports fans because everything is happening. The baseball playoffs are on. We're in week six of the NFL season. It's only week six. Wow. And of course, hockey is finally back. The Vancouver Canucks new season begins tonight and provide us with a season preview. Our show contributor, John Jang, has this report. New year, new team, same old goal. Tonight, the Vancouver Canucks will drop the puck on Game 1 of 82 in their quest to bring home the Stanley Cup. And to get you ready for the season ahead, here are the three things you need to know. The long-standing tradition of having strong Swedish representation on the Vancouver Canucks roster will continue this year. The Canucks opening night roster will feature no less than four Swedes. That will include star forward Elias Pettersson, veteran defenseman Oliver ekman Larson, and a pair of young forwards named Niels Hoglander and Niels Omen. Yes, there are two Nielses on the team. 
but that number of Swedes could grow before the season is done. The Vancouver Canucks have Linus Carlson and Philip Johansson assigned to the Abbotsford Canucks waiting for the big call-up at some point this year. But in the NHL, there are just 68 Swedes across all of the 32 teams playing in tonight's or in their season debut games. Having four of them in Vancouver is once again quite a feat. Moving on. But those are two perfectly placed shots. And of course he had a chance. But Pedersen and now Miller made it about as difficult for... Bruce, there it is. After replacing Travis Green as head coach midway through last season, Bruce Boudreaux turned the Canucks around, finishing with a record of 32-15-10. That's 32 wins, 15 losses, and 10 overtime or shootout losses. That kind of success would have them on track to finish as a playoff team over the course of a full season. So we'll see if that actually holds up this year or if it was lightning in a bottle. But there are several new players coming in, and a few key players, core players that have been locked up to long-term contracts. That brings us to our final and most important talking point. Look at me. Sure. Look at me. Sure. I'm the captain now. Do you know what Chuck Berry said every night before counting one, two, three, four? What did he say? Pay me my money. (laughs) Well, I'm sure my people will be. In cash. Cash. Oh, Captain, my Captain, what is the fate of the Canucks Captain? Think about this. Elias Pettersson has a big contract. Brock Besser has a big contract. Quinn Hughes, JT Miller, Thatcher Demko, cash, cash, cash. Bo Horvat, however, is entering the final year of his deal, and this has become a sticky situation. The Vancouver Canucks don't have a ton of wiggle room when projecting player salaries for next year and beyond, and if Bo Horvat's next contract starts at around $7 million, or approximately within that realm, that could be too rich and too much for the team to handle. On a rebuilding hockey team, this wouldn't be much of an issue. You would trade the player and get young assets or draft picks in return. But for the Canucks, a team that has clear intentions of making the playoffs, that might mean holding on to Horvat for this entire year, assuming the team can qualify for a playoff run. That would mean there is a potential scenario where Bo Horvat would walk away for nothing in free agency next summer. Worst case scenario, signing with the Toronto Maple Leafs. But most experts agree this would be a terrible situation. However, the team is objectively better with Horvat in the lineup as opposed to not. So at some point this year, Jim Rutherford, Patrick Alvin, the entire Canucks management will have to make a difficult decision. Are they trading fan favorite and team captain Bo Horvat and punting on another year of making the playoffs? Or do they keep Horvat past the trade deadline and hope that they can all make it work next summer? Ultimately, that will be a problem for tomorrow, but a problem nonetheless. However, today, tonight, the Vancouver Canucks take on Connor McDavid and the Edmonton Oilers, and Samuel L. Jackson once said it best. Hold on to your butts. Let us know what you think. Should the Vancouver Canucks trade Bo Horvat, or are they fools to even think about trading him or letting him walk away? Give us a call in the buzz line. That's 604-331-BUZZ, 604-331-2899. Back to you, Chaz. Well, John, I, you know, listening to your report, I, I'm curious, uh, how engaged do you think Vancouver Canucks fans are with the team? I, I remember, uh, you know, in the 
early 90s when I was here as a producer and even at CKNW or a global when I was working there. You had the Pavel Bure years. Those were different. Uh, and then they went had a you know, fabulous run for many, many years. Uh, great team, doing well. Uh, you know, Rogers Arena, our GM place back then was full. How engaged is the, is, is the casual fan with the Canucks now? I, I still think it's quite high. I think the Canucks have also done um, done themselves well by establishing a minor league team in Abbotsford. I think that is a smart, sound business move because now you can check out the baby Canucks in a sense. And um, even if you are out in the valley, you can't always make it downtown. Well, now you get to see a Canucks game no matter what. So I think there's ways to build that 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 importance, that that feeling of like this is still the top team in Vancouver. Forget about the the other teams. Like this is the team you still want to focus on. I think there is still that culture here, Jazz. But ultimately, it'll still largely depend on how good is the actual hockey team. We've seen from like years 2013 to 2019 some of the darkest years of, of Canucks history where they just weren't very good. Mm-hmm. And in a city where there's so many other options vying for your attention and money. Uh, it really will just come down to, can this be a playoff-bound team? If they are, I think they'll be kings of this town and in this province once again. Well, it'll be fun to watch, that's for sure, and their season begins tonight. So thank you so much, John. You got it. Thanks, Jazz. Let's talk about Beyonce. Now, the question I ask our panelists, and our panelists are Bianca Rego. She's a CKNW producer. Hello, Bianca. Hi, you can address me as Queen, Queen B. B. The other Queen considering B, that's right. the, Considering the topic. <laughs> that's right. Joining us also Talia Miller, also CKNW producer. Hello, Talia. Hello. Hello. And, of course, uh, the producer of this show, Stephen Chang. Hello, Stephen. You're going down, Jazz. I brought uh, an army today. Or, I know you did. Well, you know what? Let's get to the point. We're going to run out of time here. My core argument is that Beyonce may be culturally relevant, but she's not a pop star anymore. Tell me why I'm wrong, Talia. I mean, there's no better hype woman for you than Beyonce. I don't know about you, but anytime I put on her music, I feel on top of the world. I feel like I can get all my chores done in one day. Mm-hmm. And there's no better person for that job. She, you feel like you can take over the world is what you're saying. Oh, always. All right. So, Bianca, I got a question for you. Uh, how old were you in 2008? I was in grade eight. I think I was 14. You were 14. You know what? That was the last time. Beyonce topped the Billboard charts in 2008 with Single Ladies. I just read that. However, I would really like to question that considering Lemonade was arguably her best album. Mm-hmm. And I, I say this because she, this is again one of my points as to why Beyonce is so incredible because she brought a topic into the forefront, which is her husband cheating on her. Yeah, And it's something that a lot of women would be super, not not a lot of women, but You know what I mean? Like some women would be ashamed to speak about. And she just wrote down her emotions and how she felt so artistically into an entire album that really is empowering for other women who have been through that same situation. And I'm surprised that she hasn't been awarded for that. I I don't disagree with the message. In fact, I'd argue Solange and the elevator also brought up that pretty quick as well. Judging by the videos that we saw, (laughs) but you're right in regards to some of the, the issues that she does tackle, but she took six years off is my argument uh, before she released her last album. And of course she's raising her family, kids and all that. I get all that. But in regards to, Musical hits. That's what I'm saying. Musical hits. She remains relevant. She's regardless. culturally relevant, but not musically. Well, now, Steve, let me let, let's bring you in for a second because you know you were the most offended by my comments. Yes, sir. I'm still hurt right now. <laughs> I know you.
you are. Well, so tell me, like, why am I wrong? Well, here's the thing, Jazz. So you're talking about charts. Yeah. She doesn't even need to fight for the charts anymore. She had number one way before, and she's been hit, hitting number one consistently to the point where she's made a cultural impact. Like, let me, uh, let's talk to my friend Adele here. She's got something to say about that. I can't possibly accept this award. My artist of my life is Beyonce in this album to me. Wow. The Lemonade album was just... <laughs> So monumental, Beyonce. It was so monumental. You are our light. And the way that you make me and my friends feel, the way you make my black friends feel is empowering and you make them stand up for themselves. So not only does she empower regular people, but she also empowers like other artists as well. And not only Adele here, um, we also have her favorite village idiot commenting on this. Yo, Taylor. (laughs) I'm really happy for you. I'm let you finish. But Beyonce had one of the best videos of all time. One of the best videos of all time. Do I need to say more, Mr. Joe Hall? <laughs> that was the Taylor Swift moment, wasn't oh, it? No. Yes, that was. So, uh, but I maintain she's culturally relevant. She shows up at the match. She's got some, you know, great dress on. She's great. Uh, their music is good, is great, and she is a legendary performer. She could sell out BC Place, but she hasn't had a hit. Uh, for a very long time. And those single chart, charts do matter. That's what actually sells. That's what actually helps the music industry at the end of the day. I, guarantee, I, I understand where she has reached and where she is. And I, I absolutely respect all three of you uh, in regards to where she stands culturally. But... It also I want to go against down. that. All right, you got 10 seconds. Go ahead. Okay, well, regardless of how long it takes her to put out an album, whenever she does put out an album, mm-hmm. that is the top of the media. That's all they talk about is that Beyonce put out a new album because that's how excited people are because she is still relevant. And regardless of how long the delay takes her to put out a new song, everyone's still excited. Talia Miller, she's amazing. I know, I, and you know what? This is going to have to go uh, after the show. We'll do an after show debate as well if we have to. Talia <laughs> Miller, Bianca Regos, Stephen Jang, thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time.